We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. Captain Ord Wingate was one of the more remarkable British officers of the 20th century, which is saying a lot. He thought entirely, almost entirely, out of the box. The British seemed to produce these remarkable people with remarkable ideas and the quantities that they needed when they needed them. One of the unmissable things about the British administration in Palestine was how pro-Muslim it was. On 12 January 1937, Wingate wrote a letter to his much-admired cousin Rex, who had been a general in the British Army in many Muslim countries with quite the reputation for his work there. Wingate wrote to him, I am not ignorant of Arabic or the Arabs, not prejudiced either for or against them, but the British officials were to a man, anti-Jew and pro-Arab. They hate the Jew and like the Arab, who, although he shoots at them, toadies to them and takes care to flatter their sense of importance. Now, for Wingate's idea about how to fight the Arab revolt. Let's look at that. Wingate's world was completely shaped by the Bible. Like any true believing Christian, the battles and miracles described in it weren't distant legends, but real events to learn from. Apart from one Jewish student at Charterhouse, his school, Wingate hadn't met any other Jews in the flesh. That was soon going to change, big time. In Palestine, the first prominent Zionist he happened to meet was David Hakohen. He was with the Jewish labor organization, the Histadrat. And when Wingate met him, he was at a makeshift military headquarters in a hotel in Haifa. They were perfect strangers, but Wingate didn't let that modify what he had to say. I am a Zionist with my whole heart. I count it a privilege to help you in your struggle, and I shall devote the best years of my life to this. Cohen wrote of his first encounter with Wingate in his autobiography, Time to Tell, An Israeli Life, 1898-1984. He had fiery, searching, unsmiling eyes, extraordinary, deep-set eyes that penetrated into your inner being. Cohen asked what books Wingate had read on the topic of Zionism and the Jews. Wingate replied, There is only one important book on the subject, the Bible and I've read it thoroughly. Wingate had also read the entire Quran in Arabic. He said, The Quran is nothing but florid verbiage. There is no comparison between it and the eternal truth of Hebrew scripture, nor any choice between a national movement inspired by one text and by the other. I have been a great reader of the Old Testament, the eternal book of books, the sublime creation of the Jewish people and the everlasting witness to its life in this country. It is thanks to this book that you have survived to this day. 
Mankind's right to continued existence is dependent upon its living in accord with the moral principles of this book. Whoever raises his hand against you and the rebuilding of your land and nation must be fought. But the fight is yours, and mine is only the privilege of helping you. Please open the hearts of the Jews living in this country to me. The next and most significant acquaintance made by Wingate was Chaim Wiseman, the famous Jewish leader. Wingate was awestruck by the man. He described him as a prince of Israel, more than a king. In 1936, after Earl Peel issued his report recommending the partition of Palestine, Wingate was outraged. He prepared and sent a memorandum to Wiseman on the army that should defend the future Jewish state. He said that it ought to be based at the strategic port city of Haifa. Given the Jews' shortage of manpower, it must enlist the full woman power of the nation. He even gave it a name, the Jewish State Defence Force, or JSDF. Wingate had undoubtedly crossed a political line that his masters would have sacked him for, but for the fact that he had also applied his mind to a vital problem, that was then troubling the vital interests of the British, the rebels' relentless sabotage of the Iraq Petroleum Company pipeline. The oil delivered to the port of Haifa by the pipeline served the entire Royal Navy's Mediterranean fleet. Hitler was on the march in Europe, and this pipeline's continued, uninterrupted operation was of strategic importance. The rebels' method of disrupting the pipeline was simple and effective. Nearly every night, somewhere along its route through the Galilee, they dug a few feet into the ground to expose the pipe. They then placed a lit rag underneath it and retreated to a safe distance. Then they pierced the pipeline with a few bullets, pouring out oil, which ignited on contact with the naked flames from the burning rag, sending the flaming fuel shooting into the night sky. The Jews, seeing the flames from the burning pipeline, a regular sight, would say, well, they've lit the menorah again. In June 1938, Wingate proposed the creating of a unit designed to operate at night. That was when the rebel bands attacked the pipeline. That was when the British army was typically asleep. No Muslim police were going to be allowed to join the unit. They were seen as being either too sympathetic to the rebels, but very fundamentally they couldn't be trusted. Which Muslim was sympathetic to the Arab revolt cause, and which was loyal to the British? There was no way of telling. Most British soldiers didn't have enough knowledge of the terrain and the Arab language to be of use in this organisation. Wingate's solution was to urge the British Army to allow him to enlist carefully chosen Jewish policeman, Notrim, intimately familiar with the Galilee. One of the men chosen was the future great military leader of the Israeli Defence Forces, Moshe Dayan. Using the Jews made sense, Wingate wrote, A Jewish colony is at present the only place in Palestine where one can discuss operations with the certainty that everything will remain as secret as the grave. Reducing noise was essential. Wingate's instructions included complete silence is the rule in all cases. When in doubt, don't fire. 
is always the rule. Each group will be expected to march at least 15 miles nightly. They are to be called the Special Night Squads, or SNS. Gideon was Wingate's biblical role model for his force. The book of Judges, chapters 6 to 8, tells the story of Gideon's military leadership. It says that the warrior prophet gathered a select group of fighters at the Jezreel Valley Spring of Ein Harod to face the Midianites. Gideon divided his men into three companies and, striking at night, shocked and scattered the invaders' camp with a blow of shofars, a horn. Wingate, emulating Gideon, split up his hand-picked night fighters into three squads. He tried to organise shofars for his men too, but those plans came to nothing, especially when the junior British officer responsible for getting them was puzzled at what he understood to be the request for chauffeurs. Wingate also tried unsuccessfully to have his group renamed Gideon Force, but he was allowed to set up his headquarters at the same ancient spring, now home to Kibbutz Ein Harad, where Gideon had had his camp just before the battle with the Midianites. The kibbutz's cobblers made rubber boot soles for his men's boots from car tyres, so that his men could move silently at night. And the metalworkers at the kibbutz also honed the blades on the bayonets to lethal sharpness. Haim Sturman was Ein Harad's Mukhtar. Both the Muslims and the Jews used the same Arabic word for a village leader. Sturman impressed Wingate as the exemplary candidate for the squads, but he was in his 40s and well past the fitness required for the extreme physical activity that this military unit demanded. He'd been living in the Galilee, though, for decades. He was on close terms with his Muslim neighbours, who called him Sheikh al-Mashayak, the Jews' Sheikh of Sheikhs. He'd won the Muslims over with his quiet dignity and the respect he showed even the least among them, free of conceit, flattery or ulterior motive. Sturman didn't speak much English, but Wingate wasn't bothered. He said, Sturman's silence is better than other people's talk. Sturman was among a number of prominent Jews initially sceptical of the special night services that Wingate was forming. He feared that their methods could cede decades of Arab enmity. Those misgivings were almost completely gone, though, once Wingate's irregular methods started yielding results that were undeniable. Becoming confident in Wingate's methods, Sturman later provided Wingate with informers on the rebel band's movements, information that proved invaluable. The death of this man that Wingate admired so much was later to prove a trigger to some rather extreme revenge, much like Lawrence of Arabia, when he ordered the taking of no prisoners at one time during his career leading the Bedouin. Now his men were ready for action. In one early mission of the Special Night Services, a mixed Jewish British squad spotted fighters approaching the oil pipeline. They waited for the rebels to puncture it. Then they opened fire, easily finding their targets with the aid of the light of the blaze. The rebels suffered multiple casualties. In another operation, a force of 50 strong marched 19 kilometres over craggy terrain 
to reach a Bedouin border village to which intelligence reports attributed as being the source of attacks on the Jewish village of Hanita. Wingate's men surprised an armed band, killing its leader. Then they compelled the local Mukhtar to send the Jewish settlers a message of peace. General Haining, Palestine's topmost brass, conveyed to Wingate that he was much impressed. Wingate's special night service operations were proving to both the British and to the Zionists themselves that the Jews in Palestine could fight if given proper training and the opportunity. Wingate had raised the Haganah's initial hesitant offensive operations through the operations of his field squads to a new pitch with a competence and professionalism it couldn't otherwise have achieved. The Haganah, the Jewish paramilitary organisation that the British had only at best tolerated when they first had contact with them, was now being legitimised and coached by the world's premier armed power. The success of the Special Night Service was an unmistakable milestone in the Zionist steady march since spring 1936 toward becoming a formidable and lethal military force. Next, Wingate convened the first ever course to train Jews as non-commissioned officers. The Jewish Sergeant's Course was approved by the British military headquarters. The hundred candidates that made up its personnel were all handpicked by the Haganah. Wingate was building a command structure that would be destined to lead the Jews in the wars to come against Hitler and his allies, the Arabs for many years to come, and one day his own British army. On the course's second day, Wingate was mid-lecture when someone burst in. A car of Haganah leaders scouting the Beth Shean Valley for the next wall and tower site had hit a mine. Three people were dead, including Wingate's friend, Chaim Sturman. Wingate was silent. Then he screamed out the order for his troops to follow him in their vehicles. In the village of Baisan, a suspected rebel hub, he told his men to round up anyone with a weapon and shoot anyone trying to escape. Zvi Brenner remembered how they began to beat and trample everyone in our path. Wingate himself went out of control, entering stores and destroying whatever was in them. An hour later, we returned. Brenner said Wingate later felt remorse over the outburst in which, according to some accounts, innocent bystanders were killed. He subsequently treated his men to a typically lengthy lecture on the morality and efficacy of collective punishment. Wingate believed in collective retribution as a deterrent against villagers aiding and abetting rebels. But he also tended to view the entire Muslim nation in Palestine as a single recalcitrant village. It was, he said, rebellion by one million people. The whole Arab population is against us. Well, what was Wingate's legacy? The people who knew Wingate described him with the words, odd, Loner, dirty, brave, effective, extraordinary, genius, ruthless. These words appear constantly in the testimonies of people who served with or knew Wingate. Half a dozen Zionists and several army subordinates all settled on the same description for him. Fanatic. His three squad leaders were seconded from Brigadier Everts, 
Haifa-based 16th Brigade. The men were Lieutenants Mike Grove, Queen's own Royal West Kent Regiment, Robert Rex King Clark, Manchester Regiment, and H.E.N. Bala Breeden, Royal Ulster Rifles. All had the same opinion of him. Little affection for him, but enormous esteem. One of his squad leaders said, He was mad in all sorts of ways. Once, at an officer's cocktail party aboard a ship, Wingate arrived, filthy as usual, carrying a sack of hand grenades over his shoulder. The assembled senior officers were shocked at first. Good God! But once they realised who it was, the reactions changed. Oh, you must know, that's Wingate. That excused all of his eccentricities. He ate onions like apples and received guests naked. But behind his quirks lay a seriousness that was deadly in more than the figurative sense. Brenner said he never saw Wingate laugh. Like Ben-Gurion, that other humorless, dispassionate man of fixed vision who shaped Israel, Wingate's gaze was set on the realisation of the Jewish national project in its fullest political and military terms. He made that ambition clear in his welcome address to the Jewish sergeant's course, which he insisted on making in his determined but still imperfect Hebrew. With characteristic directness, he declared what even few Jews dared to say aloud in those days. We are establishing here the foundation for the army of Zion. Wingate's success spoke for itself. Pipeline disruptions fell by 50% in the squad's first three months of operations. In the second half of 1938, the Special Night Squad accounted for nearly one-fifth of all rebels killed and weapons seized. For a lightly armed unit, active for a very short time, and never numbering more than 150 men, well, the results were staggering. But his operations were supercharged with embedded brutality. His unit was described as a well-oiled killing machine. The illegal and semi-legal terror used by Wingate's men grew from established population-centric methods that were employed by a maverick British officer, removed from the restraints of the usual chains of command and in charge of ideologically engaged, highly motivated auxiliary troops, making for an extremely brutal and lethal combination. The British knew the dangers of employing such auxiliary troops. The sometimes lethal, usually brutal and always exemplary action of the Special Night Services was standard military counterinsurgency practice for the British soldiers leading the squads, easily employed by them against local civilians and insurgents, and now given added force by the irregular nature of the Special Night Services. The Special Night Services transformed 16th Brigade's exemplary force into a counter-terror force. The squads pacified parts of Galilee, in some measure through aggressive patrolling, night action and the use of intelligence, but also with levels of terror and assassination that forced the army to close the unit at the end of 1938 and send Wingate home. War is always brutal. The Israelis had learned under an exceptional commander, and what they had learned would stand the Israel Defence Forces in good stead for their frequent battles, always against the odds, that were going to continue coming to them. 
Thanks to the Arab Revolt and Ord Wingate, when 1948 came, the Muslims would not be up to the task of crushing the Jews, as they had been expecting. But now the Muslims were going to do something that Israel is still suffering from to this day. And that's for the next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in The Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday morning starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Kulzberg slogan for their beer. If you missed this program, you can catch up with it as a podcast on Spotify, Apple and many other sites. Search for The Danger Zone, bracket, DZ, close bracket. And if you like this program, you'll definitely love my other program, CYKIAE, also available on the same podcast sites.